Lord, thank you for uh, another beautiful day. And uh, we, we pray we would not, I pray I would not uh, tire of the snow and start to uh, grumble and wish that it was the next season. But Lord, that we would live in each day uh, as it is a gift and enjoy each season as you give it, Lord, uh, trusting that you are uh, still going to be with us uh, into the next months. And Lord, that we will be able to celebrate together through Lent uh, and, and then on Easter morning. And, and uh, Lord, that you would be doing great things in our midst. We pray we would uh, not wish for, for better times, but always uh, just live in the day that we have. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we pray that we could rejoice, we could be glad in it, we could be thankful that we can open your word together, that we can talk about uh, baptism and perhaps the Lord's Supper, and Lord, that we would uh, have a, a meaningful and profitable conversation about this today. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So last week, uh, I spent a good deal of time trying to convince Baptists to use the S word, and uh, that one, I think, went fairly well. Anybody unconvinced? Mm-hmm. S word is sacrament, Sean. Oh, um, no we, we looked at the uh, history of the word, especially in the Baptist tradition, and found that it's more common in some places than others. And perhaps the documents that this catechism is built off of, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, may have contributed to kind of a sad situation in which the sacraments are greatly downplayed by Baptists in a way that is not particularly Baptist, especially not particularly particular Baptist. <laughs> Get into subdividing. Um, but the document here is a variation on a, a I don't want to use the word plagiarism, but, you know, it's, it's basically a, a adaptation of and a little tweaking of the uh, Presbyterian Westminster Confession of Faith. And that one uses the word sacrament like 26 times, I think we found. And one of the major changes, obviously, between taking a document that is used by uh, Reformed Presbyterian tradition and turning it into a Baptist confession is going to be altering the way that baptism is taught. Because they sprinkle babies, we dunk believers... And that is a very different approach. But another thing that they changed was to remove the word sacrament even from introductory questions, instead talking about ordinances. The thing, though, is that even though they remove the word, and I think they remove it because they want to distance themselves and distance our movement from abuses in the past, particularly the papal abuses that led to the Reformation itself, even though they don't use the word, they still describe baptism and the Lord's Supper in terms of being means of grace, having power, being something in which God is at work. And uh, we're going to talk today about uh, one way in which that is described. So they kind of said, let's just lose the term because it's problematic, but keep the concept. And then over time, we see the Baptist movement, especially uh, with kind of a Second Great Awakening era, saying, let's go even further away and lose the concept as well. I think that often happens. I, I am loath to give up a term because someone has sullied it or it has been misused. We talked last week a little bit about people who say, I won't call myself a Christian. Uh, there's too many hypocritical Christians, and so I'll call myself a Christ follower or something that equally rolls off the tongue. Uh, and the idea of saying, I give up that term, which is attributed to believers in the Bible, then it was... It was uh, 
in the scriptures that, that we get this term. Um, where was it that they were first called Christians, by the way? Anyone remember? Yes, in Antioch, where they were first called Christians. Uh, because you've read the Bible, it's, it's great that you know that. Uh, and, and I don't think I want to lose these terms. I think that if a term is valuable, uh, it's worth fighting for. And I think the same thing has happened as, and I'm not picking on anyone in particular, but as church after church after church says, I don't want to bother to explain what Baptist means. There are people out there who have this idea in their mind that Baptists are all jerky hate mongers who hate, hate, hate people and have all these rules and you're not allowed to do anything. So let's just lose the term. We'll still be a Baptist, but let's lose the term. And I don't know, maybe I'm just a curmudgeon, but I would rather fight for the term and explain it and teach what it means because I think you lose the term. And here's a case study. A couple generations, few generations, maybe even a century later, you also lose the concept because you pulled the stake out of the ground. So anyway, the, the idea of an ordinance being emphasizing that Christ ordained, commanded these things, meaning there are more ordinances than just these two, because Christ ordained and commanded lots of things. Uh, and that emphasizing our obedience and our exercising our will to come in and do these things, and then being very symbolic, and sacrament being a term that emphasizes God's sovereignty rather than human free will or agency. And both aspects are important, and I think both terms are good. And we looked at, for example, the 1678 Orthodox Creed, which is a very important Baptist statement of faith, uses both terms. In fact, it's very common to see both ordinance or ordained and sacrament together in Reformation tradition, uh, statements of faith, confessions, catechisms, etc. They're not at odds with each other. I think both terms should be affirmed. Both should be used, but not interchangeably because they don't mean the same thing. That's um, a real mess of an introduction. So there you go. These terms, means of grace and effectual to salvation, both of which are used in the catechism, uh, are good, solid terms. I think they keep the people who are learning and teaching and affirming the catechism and the confession from sliding into a overly symbolic, mere memorial or mere symbol view of things. But many people are beginning to think they're more trouble than they're worth because they sound confusing. If I say baptism is a means of grace, somebody might immediately go to, oh, it's the way that I get saved. That's not unheard of as a doctrine. For example, who teaches baptism is a requirement for salvation. I'm not asking for a show of hands. I mean, does anyone know of any traditions in which that's the case? Roman Catholic? Certainly, yeah. That's why only, only the clergy are allowed to do it unless you're in an emergency situation and someone's kind of bleeding out on the ground. Anyone can do it because it has to be done. Um, you really Lutheran doctrine would emphasize that. Uh, as well. Um, and if you want to even go with believer's baptism, churches that have that, there's a whole tradition, the Church of Christ, uh, including uh, a wide variety, a spectrum, all the way from the really conservative, non-instrumental, all the way to the very, very liberal disciples of Christ, who would say, yes, you're saved by God's grace, but that becomes effectual when you go underwater. That's, that's how it's received. So we don't want to go to that extreme, 
The solution is never, though, to go to the other extreme or to split the difference. In theology, the solution is always to find the tension and embrace it, uh, the, the biblical tension. And I think that while those terms may be uh, a little confusing and are easily explained, sacrament is less confusing and more easily explained, and therefore it shouldn't even be a question of whether or not we're going to hang on to it. We also need to correct the view of limiting God's grace in our lives to the moment of conversion, right? I think that there are unbiblical terms that have become problematic that we could lose before we lose these ancient biblical categories, things like uh, ask Jesus into your heart, etc. We'll lose sacrament, but we'll hang on to that? Are you kidding me? Um, Look at how these, these things are framed, because first of all, the, the ordinances are lumped together with other means of grace here. Uh, uh, we're going to go back actually here to question 70. I'm just going to read a couple things here. I oh, know, question 71. What are the outward means whereby the Holy Spirit communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer was the outward and ordinary means whereby the Spirit communicates to us the benefits of Christ's redemption are the word by which souls are begotten to spiritual life, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, and meditation, by all which believers are further edified in their most holy faith. Then the questions come in. First, how is the word made effectual to salvation? This is going to be a similar answer to to the next one. Uh, The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convicting and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation. Notice it's not apart from faith, it's through faith. These things, the the Spirit working in the Word through faith to save people. Then we ask, how is the Word to be read? And we talked about that briefly. Uh, And then the question comes up, 74, which is where we're kind of camping out at the moment. How do baptism and the Lord's Supper become spiritually helpful? Baptism and the Lord's Supper become spiritually helpful not by any virtue in them, nor in him who does administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of the Spirit in those who by faith receive them. Emphasis all the way across the board then is on God's work in these things. I read a book, I'm convicted. I hear preaching, I'm convicted, I'm built up. I'm baptized in all of these things. It's not the power of the one doing them, or even the power of the thing itself, the pages of the book, the water in the river or the baptistry, the welches in the cup, etc. You know, how Jesus did? Uh, no, rather, these things are powerful only by the blessing of Christ and the working of the Spirit in those who, by faith, receive them. Again, not, not divided from the faith, not separated from the faith, but by faith, they're being received. So the power of them is not in, the, in me blessing the bread and the cup or dunking someone underwater. It's not in you uh, saying, I'm going to make a, a bold proclamation and, and a public witness by being baptized or by taking the Lord's Supper. It's not in the elements themselves. Uh, I do kind of appreciate the great reverence that's given to the actual elements in some traditions where it can't be thrown out, uh, etc. Once, once you've said the words of institution and these things are blessed 
and are, are become the, the body and blood of Jesus, uh, we're not going to do anything, you know, it, it, at worst, we're going to kind of crumble up the bread and sprinkle it around, and the birds of the air can come and eat it. Just like, uh, Alex, it was you and I recently talking about the, the rabbi who told me, you have to take these photocopies of these Jewish works that have scripture on them back to me. When I was in college, I was getting my, my degree in religion, you have to bring these back to me. You can't just throw them away or recycle them. And I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the idea of these things have become set aside, but the power is still not in these things. Um, I would be very uncomfortable if somebody took home the rest of the bread because they like it and made like a bologna sandwich. But I think at the end of the day, as Baptists, we aren't consecrating and deconsecrating buildings, and we're not consecrating and deconsecrating bread and wine and water, for that matter. You know where the water goes after the baptism when we pull the plug? The same place all the wastewater goes, and that's okay. The power is in what Christ is doing in it in the act, by the faith of the one receiving it, and, and the working of the Spirit and the blessing of Christ. All of that stuff is where the power is. And that, I think, is why we need to rediscover where it's been lost, the idea of a sacrament. Because the other idea, the mere memorial, simultaneously puts all the power in my hands, almost in this counterintuitively Roman Catholic way, and your hands as the ones doing the things. But then in order to make sure that it's not too medieval and superstitious, we suck all the meaning and power out of it and make it a mere memorial. At the end of the day, then, why bother? I, I think of uh, John Calvin, who, when he was having some power struggles with the, the elders, the town elders in Geneva, and he had uh, actually cut one of them off by a church discipline from receiving the sacraments. I think, or I think two or three of them off. And uh, at the end of the service, when they'd been denied the sacrament, they got up and began walking up the aisle uh, with the intention of, we're just going to take it because there's more of us than him. And literally, John Calvin could have been blown over by a stiff breeze. And uh, he ran out in front of the altar, threw his body over the bread and cup and said, this body you may destroy, but you will not defile these holy elements. Like it was worth dying for, for him. And I, I think it'd be better if we erred on that side than on, well, jokes about it, than on, let's just throw it at the end of something real quick, or let's go for months and months without it and not worry about it. Uh, there was, when, when churches were subject to lockdowns and, and stay-at-home orders and things, uh, you could see by how much kind of growing angst and discontent there was between churches or even individuals of, I haven't had the Lord's Supper in months, how it was valued and how important it was. Uh, I think you may also can see how important it is based on how often we choose to participate in these things when we have all the freedom in the world, right? I mean, there are some churches where it's quarterly. There are some churches where it's every single week. There are some churches where it's monthly. That's us. We're in the middle. Uh, I have had, over the ages, from time to time, pushed for a weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper, and uh, I think the deacons at the time said, okay, but you have to get it ready every week. We'll do it once a month, 
It's just too much work. Uh, and and I, I got that. Uh, they were stretched a little thin already. And there was the, the question of if we do it every week, will it lose its specialness? Um, I think that's misguided. Uh, just like reading the scriptures every week, don't make them lose their specialness. But I do think once a month is a, is a good uh, rhythm. It's, it's maybe because that's what I've always experienced my whole life. Um, it's a nice, happy medium between uh, every single time we gather together and very, very rarely. That's uh, Any thoughts on, on that? It's almost kind of all a recap of last week with a little additional color commentary. Any thoughts on that stuff? No? Well, getting into what we lose when we lose this notion that's taught here, if not named, of means of grace and uh, effectual unto salvation, the Westminster Confession of Faith calls the sacraments both a sign, and think about maybe like signs and wonders in the, the, the book of Acts, something that should point to a greater thing. Uh, the reason there's a lot of miracles in the book of Acts is because the faith was new. There was no New Testament. Uh, the Holy Spirit is at work powerfully. The apostles are going out in these dangerous, impossible situations, and these things draw the attention I mean, from the day of Pentecost, right? All these guys speaking all these languages. We don't know what's going and, and so they point to this particular thing. Now, when signs and wonders today are abused in some settings, it, it, you can tell because it always points back to self. Oh, look what I've done. Ooh, look how powerful I am. It, these things should be pointing to Jesus. So sign and seal. And, you know, I have, for example, I could go get my my Master of Divinity degree and bring it in here and show you that it's real because it has the seal on it, right? Embedded in it. Or I could, get, <laughs> I could get my ordination certificate, which also has a seal on it, but that one isn't like authentic. I wanted to go visit some people in jail at one point years ago, and I went to the mm-hmm. warden who said, this doesn't have a seal on it. It needs to have a seal. And I called up Mike Williams at the, <laughs> the, the headquarters and said, can I get a seal? He's like, I don't have a seal. <laughs> And so I wound up, I still have it on my desk, ordering a seal that's got the American Baptist logo and the words American Baptist Churches of Michigan around the outside, and I actually stamp all of our baptism certificates with that, make them a little more official. Um, but baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments are actual, legitimate seals. Don't you report me. Mike, You're reporting yourself. You're recording all Actually, Mike knew I did that, and it was twice when he called me and asked to use the thing. <laughs> so it, it, it is helpful because I think it shows, I think it shows this is a, uh, you know, not someone who just bought the thing on the internet, and now they want to visit their buddy in jail. You know, it was a legitimate thing. Although you could buy that thing on the internet, and there it is. Yeah, well, I think it may be a relic of a former time. When I make a deposit for the old newsboys, there's like... 300 checks, and I have to stamp all of them for deposit only with a stamp. <laughs> and they won't take them unless I've stamped them. It just drives me crazy. Because what does, what value was, we bought this thing in the, right. in the store. <laughs> no, you have to do it. Oh boy, red tape. Uh, well, there's no red tape in the sacraments. Uh, signs and seals. Um, let me read for you a statement on baptism from... Figure this out. The Canadian Convention of Southern Baptists. I want you to listen carefully for sign language and seal language. 
Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. The first thing was a seal. Read it slowly. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you're sealed, right, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? I mean... That's just quoting scripture, I think, saying the, the valid baptism they recognize is not going to be Jesus-only baptism like some Pentecostal churches, and it's not going to be non-water, I guess. Uh, and it's broad enough to imply also effusion or aspersion or something. I don't think you have the seal there. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> it is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's symbolizing. faith. Symbolizing. Okay, what's that? A sign. A sign, certainly. Uh, in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus, all those are the things that are symbolized. It's a, a bullet list, kind of. It is testimony to the faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Testimony would be a sign as well. Right. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the believer, the privileges of church membership and the Lord's Supper. Okay, so just signs. Just, just a sign, right? So you have a kind of classically 19th, 20th century Baptist view of baptism as simply a sign, as simply a memorial, as simply something that symbolizes something else, and that's it. Not a sign in the sacramental way, though, where it is tied closely to that which it signifies. And I think that's the difference. The further away you get, the more it's just a reminder and not actually connected with, the more you are in territory of gazing at that picture that someone painted of Jesus or at a cross or kneeling in a sanctuary or anything that might make me just think about these things that are good things to think about and symbolize for that matter. But there is something more in these two rites, these two rituals, these two celebrations, whatever we call them, there's something that sets them apart. Also, there's no you in Savior. So there's that. There is a Panama. I'm saying, yeah, that's well, it's just another mistake they made. Was it was the problem? Oh, Canada. Ever to America's Garfield. You think they're gonna come after me? Some trucker guys and stuff? No, they're not going to. Yeah, right. I'm safe for a while, I guess. Um, but the, so sign but not seal, and it's all the work of. It says men here, but I think they probably have updated it since to say humans or people or something. Uh, men and women and youth, uh, all, all, all our stuff. I dip stuff in water all the time. And yet, I am not taking part in something holy all the time. There is a very big difference in these two approaches. Let's read question 75. What is baptism? Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ to be to the person baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and burial and resurrection, of his being ingrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of his giving up himself to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life.
Wonderful. What you don't see there, even though you have the word ordinance, is the word symbolize, which you have featured heavily before a similar list in the, the Canadian Southern Baptist statement. I actually at one point forbade the deacons who were praying before uh, the Lord's Supper to use the word symbolize because it was being used in a very 20th century Baptist way to demote and disempower the, the thing that was happening on the altar. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this bread which symbolizes your body. And I say, hold on. At the Last Supper, did Jesus say, this symbolizes my body broken for you? Or did he say, this is my body? Now, we don't believe in, we're going to get to the different understandings of these things. We don't believe in a transubstantiation where it physically, literally becomes Jesus' body, uh, although sneakily looks and tastes still like bread. It is a metaphor, but it's not a simile. Metaphor is stronger, right? When Jesus said, I am a door, it didn't mean that he literally became made of you know, wood and metal and had hinges and stuff, but... He didn't say I'm like a door. He said I am a door, which means I function as a door here. You have to enter through me in order to get in at all. And when he says this is my body, he is closely tying that sign to that which it signifies. Let's go back and look all the way to the historical earlier, earliest roots of baptism. It was actually a Jewish ritual. People sometimes think John the Baptist invented baptism. Uh, because he's the first one you read about doing it in the Bible and because he's got it in his name. By the way, what do John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? They both eat honey. honey. Same middle name. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, But it's actually a, a ritual that a proselyte would have to go through. So there was a process, if you were a Gentile and wanted to become... Uh, part of the the covenant community, the Jewish community, there was obviously a series of things you had to learn. There was a series of things you had to commit to. There was things that had to happen. For example, had you not been circumcised and were a male, you had to do that. And one of the last things was you were baptized in this purification ritual. Uh, It was a physical and visual repentance. Everyone saw you go under the water and come up, and yes, you went under the water in these things uh, and came up, and now you have kind of this sense of newness, new birth. I'm, I'm now reborn. I wasn't circumcised and welcomed into the covenant as a baby, but now I am as an adult. Uh, I'm becoming part of the, the Jewish faith. Uh, this is probably why, certainly why, John objected to Jesus being baptized He's going, you don't have anything to repent of. You are pure. You should be baptizing me. And of course, Jesus is bringing, as he does with everything, including the Passover meal, new meaning and infusing it into existing uh, symbols and things. Uh, In fact, it's so much so that they become new rituals. Uh, They become new wineskins for the new wine. Uh, There are different aspects to it. It's multi-layered. When I'm going to baptize somebody, I meet with them uh, usually twice, and we talk about every aspect of it. Um, The first and probably the main one emphasized in Baptist churches today is that it is a public profession. And, you know, 
the even this, you know, the word sacramentum, I told you last week, uh, means a solemn oath, and it was the word used for, for Romans, especially Roman soldiers, to swear their allegiance to Caesar, and the Christians then would swear their allegiance instead to the Lord Christ, uh, Christ as king. Uh, but in, in this sense, baptism is like a soldier putting on the uniform, right? You, you, we're not doing this privately because... A, a Roman soldier would walk out publicly wearing all of the emblems and all of the uh, outer uh, accoutrement of a soldier, right? Uh, and, and so we publicly profess our solemn oath to our Lord. But what's interesting about this answer is it doesn't have anything about public. It's like it's saying that it's a sign to the person being baptized. Yeah, I know the, the, the emphasis here is definitely not on, the, on that, <laughs> which I think is telling because that's the only emphasis we, we see on it yeah. often today. Uh, when, you know, the spontaneous baptisms happen at uh, churches sometimes, very, very large churches, uh, you'll, you'll hear just this language. Are you ready to make public your private beliefs. There is that aspect in baptism, although it isn't the core of it. Otherwise, it makes no sense at all when Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are together in the chariot and he says, look, there's water. What's to stop me from being baptized? And Philip doesn't say the lack of a bunch of witnesses. (laughs) He says, if you believe, let's do it because this is something God is doing with the moving of the spirit and the command and promise and blessing of Christ and your faith coming together. Uh, so this is an aspect, I, I put it first to kind of get it out of the way, honestly, but I, I, for, from the most early ancient church, there was this aspect of when someone is being baptized, even in, in uh, churches where infant baptism was the norm, you would have on Easter Sunday, people, adult converts, coming to faith, being baptized, and part of this was, except for, you know, when you had the people being baptized naked and it was kind of done... Uh, off to the side, but that was its whole other thing, a whole other chapter in church history. Um, where people could come and watch it, it was permission for you to now hold me accountable. Uh, I am making this public profession of faith. You've seen it. It's on record. Uh, you know, there are, there are places, probably not as many anymore, but still today, there are places where baptismal records are, are like some of the central public records that exist to show who lived when and where. Um, and, and that should maybe be just as significant for us in the church who are baptized as believers because this is a birth record, right? Uh, a, a rebirth record. Uh, and and uh, the, the picture of being dunked, of course, you have, as with Jewish baptism, the notion of cleansing. Uh, it's the spiritual act pictured in a living picture, that's what sacraments are, living pictures, in a physical way, something that's happened spiritually and internally. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but, anybody remember that? Someone want to look up 1 Peter 3, 18 to 21? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous of the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, 
in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the picture is, I mean, we all know what it means to wash something. And at its core, that's what this, this root bapto, from which the word baptizo comes, means to cleanse, to wash. Uh, despite many seminarians wanting to say it only means to dunk all the way underneath water. It means to wash. Generally, when you wash something, you submerge it, you plunge it into the water, unless it's you know, your phone or something. But the outward picture of removing dirt here symbolizes and, and, and more signifies in a way that ties it to that which is signified uh, the cleansing of our consciences. Now, the phrase Peter uses is baptism saves us. That would be one that a Roman Catholic, a Lutheran, a Church of Christ uh, Christian would point to and say, what do you do with that, Baptist? And I would say, well, I certainly don't ignore it and go to the far other extreme and say this is a mere memorial that doesn't tend to do anything. In fact, in the Nicene Creed that we affirm together, um, we, we all believe in baptism for the remission of sins. I keep on meaning someday to redo those because I think a better translation of the Greek is baptism unto the remission of sins, uh, emphasizing means of grace but not source of grace. Uh, and that's, I believe, what is being taught in, in Peter and elsewhere uh, where baptism is dealt with. The dunking picture is a cleansing, a washing picture. I think more important than that in the dunking underwater, we have this picture of being buried with Christ in his death as we go under the waters and then rising with Christ into newness of life as we come up out of the waters. Uh, that's Romans 6, 3 to 5. Anyone get there quicker than I can? Going slow on purpose. Come on. We got it. Excellent. Let's hear it. Six. Three to five. I was a little bit. I was lying a little bit when I said I had it. <laughs> um, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That is, in my mind, the best argument for immersion baptism. Uh, that without it, with other forms of baptism, with other modes, and we'll talk about the other modes in just a second if we have time, uh, you, you don't have that picture. You can't have that picture. How does having water poured over the head symbolize going down into a grave and, and, and dying with him and coming back up? How does sprinkling of water have, in any sense, that kind of element to it? How is it an accurate living picture at that point? I'm not saying that these are invalid. I'm saying they're incomplete and they could have been done in a, in a more biblical way. Uh, and I think that this is the most, this is the core in my mind of what baptism is all about. Death with Christ, rising again, and in that process being washed and cleansed. Uh, and it, that, it's not something that extreme is the only way that all the filth on you and me could have been washed away and, and cleansed from us is, is through death of the old self 
and uh, resurrection to newness of life. The mode of baptism has been a, a source uh, in the church at large and especially in Baptist churches more recently of great strife, disagreement. Uh, Aaron and I were once at a church council meeting at a different church where tears were shed over this. Um, I don't think by anybody who really understood why they thought that their view was right, but oh well, uh, just emotions get high for some reason. Uh, this idea of mode, uh, there's three different modes, essentially. There is immersion. That is what we practice. It means if one hair of your head remains <laughs> out or the end of your pinky nail, believe it or not, right to jail. Or uh, right back in line. You gotta, you gotta get, no, it, it means the idea of going under and coming back up. Uh, and it's something that the earliest Baptists preferred, and then the particular Baptists uh, in England began to insist on. But it's not too long before you have a divergence of views. In fact, John Bunyan, the great John Bunyan, one of my, probably tied for my favorite historical Baptist. No problem with different modes of baptism, as long as it's water baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we're going back to the beginning of our movement with him, 17th century. Uh, so there's a, a variety of views on it, but if you're Baptist, you understand immersion to be the most biblical. Obviously, the most important aspect is that it's a believer being baptized, but that's a, a later question in, in the catechism. Uh, the three modes used in the church, immersion, the person's completely submerged, effusion, which is pouring of water on the head, sometimes even while someone is standing waist deep in, say, a pond or a river or something, uh, and you do that. I, I remember watching a Jesus movie when those were all the rage in like the late 90s, uh, where they, they, John poured water onto Jesus' head with a shell and then kind of like put his hands on his shoulders and pushed him underwater. And I was like, oh, they're trying to cover the bases here. Um, but, but that's a, another one, a fusion, and that's often used for people who are ill or bedridden and, and elderly and want to be baptized but could not be conceivably brought somewhere to be dunked underwater. Uh, it, would, it wouldn't even be safe. And aspersion, which is sprinkling, which is generally what's done with infants. Although I think we've all seen that viral video <laughs> with the priest uh, in the Greek Orthodox tradition. They three times submerge infants. And <laughs> I should have brought that and put it on a screen. It's a, he, Puts them under, 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 and the, then, then they pause the video and they zoom in on the baby's face and it's like. There's also one where the baby slips out of the priest's hand and he recovers it quick. And you see everyone kind of, yeah, in slow motion go, what could have happened? Um, you know what the easiest way to avoid that stuff is? Just have some patience. This is not a non-issue. It's I don't think it's... Um, the mode is not the most important thing, but it's not uh, quibbling and splitting hairs to have the debate, to have the discussion. Uh, it's been very important to Baptists that we do things the right way, the biblical way. Our movement begins with saying, hold on, rather than say, what do we need to remove from this current service the way we have it and this current structure the way we have it? Let's go back to the Bible and say, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and 2,000 years of Christian tradition, what does the Bible actually command? What, what does worship look like in the Bible? What does the life of the church look like in the Bible? And let's start there. And if we're going to do that, yeah, this is a, a debate that needs to be had. And just like in my Baptist history class, I was telling everyone the Baptist approach in, say, Providence 
where for the first time in American history and one of the first times in world history, there was no compulsion to follow a particular religious tradition, set of beliefs and practices. You could be Quaker on this corner, have the Anglican church here, the Congregational church here, the Baptist church here, a group of atheists meeting down the street and a coven of witches over here, and no one's going to be thrown in the stocks or burned at the stake. But they're debating, and they're debating frequently, and they're debating with hard claims. So again, to go back to Bunyan, Quakers were his specialty. He would, he would get up there as the Baptist and he would debate them all day long and show from the scriptures why their view was wrong. And then he would say, I love your brother. Can I help you out? I understand that your, your wife is sick. You know, so there, that religious toleration and that, and that uh, tension there of it's not the modern limp version of tolerance where you have to affirm everything that everyone else says as true. Rather, it's a common sense kind of toleration that says, I love you and want you to be able to be happy and not be persecuted even while I show you. And then within Baptist churches, that's the case, right? You have a wider variety of different beliefs within a Baptist church than you would within, say, a Wisconsin Synod Lutheran church or a Presbyterian Church of America church because they have sets of, of doctrines that you have to sign on the bottom line and say, I hold to all of this. And we say, no, there's a bigger tent. There's room for different views. There's soul liberty. But that doesn't mean we stop trying to get to the bottom things from Scripture with the Berean spirit. Baptism may be a, one of the best examples of this. And it really is fairly, very important, even though it's not the most important issue. The fact that we're called Baptists is an accident of history. It's not because we're all about baptism. It's because the way we approach baptism is different from everyone else. And so that's how we were identified. By the way, we're not Anabaptists. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the Baptist church comes from the Anabaptists. Our first major confession says, of those commonly, though falsely called, Anabaptists. That would be your, uh, today, your Mennonites, Amish, etc., etc. Um, so being Baptist, we do have room for different views on things, and mode of baptism is no different. Historically, from quite early in the church, though, the church fathers did not seem to have a problem with any of the three modes of baptism. Has anyone here uh, heard of the Didache or are familiar with the Didache? The teaching of the 12 apostles. It is probably pseudepigraphical, not written down by the 12, but it is the earliest post-scriptural set of writings about the early church that we have. It was actually fairly recently discovered. And it's fascinating. You should get a hold of it. You can probably find a free version of it for your Kindle uh, or just on Wikipedia. I'm sure you can click over to a translation of it. It's not all that long. It's worth reading and, and going, huh, not, you know, not two generations after Christ ascended into heaven, this was what it was being written down about life in the early church. Now, this was written... I want to say 75 is, is more or less the, I, didn't, I don't have it in my notes, but I think 75 is, uh, AD 75 is the best guess that we have. And in the Didache, it says that baptism can be done anywhere there is running water. Now, that doesn't mean running water like how our baptistry has running water. You turn a knob and it comes in. It means the idea was because Jesus and John and the apostles seem to be going out into rivers. You know, River Jordan is the first place these Christian baptisms or, or, or proto-Christian baptisms are happening. 
then running water should be the preference. Anywhere there's running water and done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. However, it goes on to say, if you do not have running water, baptize in some other. If you cannot in cold, then in warm. If you have neither, then pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, first century church, writing about their view of these things, basically say pouring, dipping, indoors, outdoors, cold, warm, as long as it involves water and is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's baptism. Because again, their view seems to be in line with this answer to this question. The power is not in what kind of water. It's in the blessing of Christ and the working of the Spirit through the faith of the believer for this newness, uh, walking in newness of life in Jesus Christ. Uh, I think it's interesting that the, the preference is cold, and if you can't find it, then warm. <laughs> we have a heater here in our baptistry, and I think we would do even fewer baptisms if we didn't, if you put in cold water. But I got to imagine, I mean, you've all jumped under water in cold water and come up, and you know it feels very invigorating. invigorating. <laughs> uh, and there may be something to that, this idea of the sense of, whoa, this kind of spiritual, and I've seen some people come out of, uh, out of the waters of baptism and you can see a glow on them. And I, and I don't mean how like people say to pregnant women, I can see the glow because I don't know what else to say to the pregnant woman. I mean like literally something supernatural. And maybe the cold water actually kind of helps that feeling. I don't know. Uh, but I've never baptized in cold water, only ever in warm uh, but, you know, before 1633, even Baptists practiced pouring and sprinkling. So put that in your sippy cup and suck it. Uh, <laughs> and then in 1633, some English Baptists, the, the particular Baptists, the Baptists from whom we come, insisted upon immersion as the only biblical mode of baptism. Today, you're going to have people making hard cases, unbending cases. I remember an old guy uh, who heard my view of baptism at my ordination uh, council coming up to me and handing me photocopies of notes he took in seminary in like 1804 and, and uh, saying, you should know these things if you're going to be an American Baptist minister. I like that he had it ready. Oh, yeah. Like he knew that anybody would need it. Yeah, he probably just followed all, filed all these things away. I looked, took one look at it and I said, okay, this, a little Greek is a dangerous thing. And he had a very little Greek. Uh, baptizo, as I mentioned, means to wash or cleanse or really the application of water by any means. The word uh, baptismois, obviously you can even hear in my just saying it, very much related, in the, in the book of Hebrews, describes the sprinkling of blood on items in the tabernacle. So it means to wash, it means to cleanse, it doesn't mean, and anyone tells you, hey, baptizo, that word baptism in the Greek means it has to be dipped all the way underwater. Say, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know you, you knew no Greek. Or, or a tiny little bit, just enough to be very dangerous. Like a, like a you know, a, no, I almost said something awful. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, I mentioned that. Uh, that's, by the way, if you're writing down uh, specific references, Hebrews 9, 13 to 21 is where we have the uh, same Greek root referring to various ceremonial washings and then going on to describe those washings specifically as sprinkling blood on people and on vessels in the tabernacle. They were cleansed, but it didn't involve immersion. Uh, any Greek morphology, by the way, will bear this out. Those are the standard books that show you uh, the morphology of words and, and the 
etymology of, of different words. Uh, these cleansings are detailed in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers and Leviticus and even in Exodus. And dipping is very, very rare in those cases where later on they're referred back to as, as essentially baptisms. Uh, it has a very wide semantic domain, cleansing in some form. But when you take a word that has a wide semantic domain and you narrow it, it does become more specific. And that happens all the time. Um, the word friend, right? That's a very wide word. Now when you say, let's turn it into something specific. I friended this person on Facebook and now they're my friend. It means much less because it's become now a more technical term and it, and it doesn't have a lot of other options. You've limited yourself. Baptism is the same way. It does begin with a very broad sense of just washing, sprinkling, dipping, pouring, whatever. We're cleansing. But once you get into it as a theological term, it limits itself, or rather, Jesus and the apostles limit what it is going to mean. Uh, I think that's a good spot to stop. Uh, we'll pick up with um, the rest of that question, maybe look up those texts, and then to whom is baptism to be administered next week? And of course, that is the big debate amongst different stripes of Christians. Uh, Sean, would you close us in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, hearty group of people who came out this morning to study your word. Thank you for Pastor Zach and all of his knowledge and how he is so good at uh, supplying it to us. Uh, be with us as we go into the service and um, help our worship to be something that um, you are happy with. Uh, be with all of our church members and keep them safe in the snowy weather and allow our country to have a good time this afternoon as they watch the Super Bowl. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.